Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks so much for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you would like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morningsun underscore fellow traveler, or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you. Hello, everybody. Here I am again. Here we are again on this beautiful uh, Sunday evening. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day, right? Uh, so we we got a day off, right? You have the day off, right, Jacob? I have the day off every day. I I, I work for myself, so I get ah, to decide when I go to work. Good for you. Well, yes, I'm joined by Jacob Faderici. And where are you coming from, Jacob? I live in Los Angeles. Wow, Los Angeles. That's cool. So we got a three-hour time difference. This is a lot of fun. It's okay. It's a lot later for me than him, but that's okay. I'm a night owl. Um, Jacob Faderici is well grew up in the orthodox jewish tradition yes no um i i didn't actually grow up um my family is what's called traditional um meaning they sometimes sometimes would go to orthodox uh services sometimes go to other forms of services and um my parents really did not uh raise me to be as religious as i uh as I am, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly not to live within um, the Orthodox Jewish life like I did. I, for about 10 years, I was an observant Orthodox Jew, um, which is a very different lifestyle than than most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think of, I mean, forgive me, forgive me or correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I really know very little, but you know, you picture like the ones who wear, have the hair and the curly hair and the beards and the, I had the beard and the black hat. And yeah, that was me. Yeah. That was you. Okay. Wow. And now you have no hair. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. For those who can't, cause I, uh, this is a, uh, audio podcast, so nobody can see, but, um, yep. Jacob no longer has hair, unfortunately. Uh, Jacob no longer wears a yarmulke all the time, no, or, no. or or tzitzit, or all, no beard. all the things. A beard would um, look nice on you. So this was this was one of the problems I, I had. This is actually what I <laughs> when when I explained to people why I left the Orthodox life. Um, the best explanation I have is I was trying to be a Hasidic 
Jew and, uh, and I, I worked as an assistant rabbi at a Hasidic synagogue. And um, my, if my beard gets any longer than this, I start scabbing and bleeding. Like oh, no. my face really, like my skin can't take a beard. <laughs> and reasons. And, you know, that was, that was very, very difficult for me. It's like, God, like, why, why is, and it was one of many things which convinced me that um, whatever God wanted for me, it, it wasn't the life that I envisioned for myself. And um, that's, that's how I ended up actually le leaving the, the Hasidic community. I, I still, I'm still involved with the Hasidic community. Um, I, I still have friends within it. Um, I still go to synagogue, not three times a day, <laughs> but um, I still go to synagogue every once in a while. And uh, so I'm still connected to it, but I'm not within the Orthodox community like I was. Mm -hmm. Wow. So growing up, did you always live in California? So I was actually born in Iran. I was born in Tehran, really? Iran. And wow. we came to the United States as refugees when I was uh, seven years old. And we've been, um, I've mostly lived in Los Angeles the rest of that time. I spent a year uh, studying at a yeshiva, which is a Jewish seminary um, in uh, Jerusalem. But other than that, I've, I've basically lived in the United States ever since we came here and Los Angeles. since. We oh, wow. So. You grew up in Iran. What was that experience like? Horrible. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, you do not want... Well, I don't think anybody should be inflicted with living through um, what Iran was like um, from the revolution in 1979 through the Iran-Iraq war, which um, went past when we left. So... It was a war-torn country that was also being affected by an Islamist um, revolution. And we were Jews in Iran <laughs> during that time. Um, not, not, not the best of things. Wow. Is there still like, uh, are there still Jews in Iran? There are. Um, the, the Persian Jewish community has, has, always been a very small number of people uh but in following um 1948 and the establishment of the state of israel the amount of anti-semitism in iran and basically among muslim countries went up incredibly iran was actually much more hospitable than most of the other muslim countries until the revolution and with the revolution in 79, it became even worse. And so um, actually in Los Angeles, I live in one of the largest expatriates Jewish Persian communities in the world. And there are far more Persian Jews living in Los Angeles and in other places than there are. Uh, I believe the number of Jews still in Iran is something like 25,000. You know, the, the big irony of it all is that, like, genetically, you're probably not 
any different than the Iranians that you grew up that you grew up next to, you know, like. Well, yeah, I mean, I I did my genetic testing. They're they're definitely, you know, so me personally, like ninety percent of my genes are um, indigenous to that area of Asia, like Syria, Israel, and my grandmother. Um, so my father's first language, his mother tongue was Aramaic. My grandmother still spoke Aramaic at home. And I have family who still speak Aramaic. And so, yeah, I mean, as quite likely my family's been living in that same area, at least my father's side of the family for a thousand years and uh, quite possibly since the Babylonian uh, exile, since biblical times. Oh, wow, that's actually that's actually really neat to think about like uh, that at one point, like obviously your descendants were in Jerusalem, but then during the Babylonian exile, when was that like 400 BC or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. So yeah. before the books of Ezra, Nehemiah and Daniel were written in, they are Aramaic. Like, mm -hmm. so most of the Bible is in Hebrew. There are a few uh those few books which have portions in aramaic and that's because of the captivity they were written oh, wow. during the captivity babylonian captivity and so my family are actually um quite likely most likely descended from the people who did not go back with ezra to rebuild jerusalem wow. um that that the bible talks about yeah we that's were the pretty, bad people <laughs> yeah that's well that's pretty neat though that um there's almost like anthropological archaeological evidence of the exile that it wasn't just like some made-up story that represented something else like so often in the old testament or the hebrew scriptures there's kind of like representative characters who may not have existed historically but represent some represent people groups but like you see, like there actually is evidence of an exile. There's actually a lot of it. I mean, I personally, so I'm I, as a believing Orthodox Jew, I I believe the Bible is while I mean, for example, there is a debate within Orthodox Judaism and in the Talmud itself, whether or not Job, for example, wasn't was a real person or the story is only allegorical. Um I believe the Bible is generally history and we have actually a lot of evidence. So one of my favorites, uh, and I forget what the name of that um, precise tablet was, but there's actually a tablet we have from the first exile, which um, so when they took the um, Davidic kingdom Right, so they they took them into the, the Babylonians took them into exile. Um, the there it, there was established a court, uh, which was basically for the captive king and his descendants. This is called the the court of the exilarch, and we actually have a tablet that's over twenty five hundred years old. I believe twenty five hundred years old, around there, which. Um, is from the court of the Babylonian king that shows the rations that they were allotting 
to the captive king from the Bible. So it, it says like this many bushels of grain, this many slaves, this many of this, right? And it was it's a record of the Babylonian king giving his the allotment to this court of the captive Davidic king in Babylon. Wow, that's really neat. That's super cool when stuff like that happens, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's it's absolutely miraculous. I um, One of the things I talk about on, on my channel a lot is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I think mm. oh, yeah, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls have, have absolutely been, I believe it is a miracle from God, which has helped, which in present day helps us better understand what he has revealed to us through the Bible. Yeah, it kind of gives us a little, a little pep in our step in there, and and a lot of, I mean, even to Christians too, because we, I mean, most Christians still hold the Hebrew scriptures in high regard. Some, some want to just throw them away and just turn to the New Testament. The problem with that is, the New Testament is so filled with the Old Testament. You know, <laughs> there's so there's so many things that you will never understand in the New Testament if you don't understand that it was written by Jews who we're reflecting on the old testament scriptures which is a fascinating topic that i'd love to get into but um so but tell me my journey oh yeah my my journey for the past two years has been partially uh seeing how jewish jesus was in reading the gospels for myself and to like what I like to say controversial things. And one of the controversial things I like to say is um, I, I don't think the vast majority of Christians know enough about Judaism to read their own Bible. For sure. No, you're not wrong at all. And it's for unfortunate reasons in history, namely anti-Semitism, that crept in so quickly because, you know, early on there was these debates in the early church of whether or not Gentiles should get um, cause it was like almost one of the first times where a Jewish sect was proselytizing, right? It was like, they're making disciples and that, I feel like right. that's just not very common. It, it is not at all common. And in fact, so one of the things that the Dead Sea Scrolls has, has helped us better understand. And so the most popular conversation I've had on my channel was with Father Stephen DeYoung, who is a... Um, a priest, a, a, an Eastern Orthodox priest, and also a great scholar of Second Temple Judaism. And yeah. Second Temple um, scholarship has advanced a lot in the past 50 years, especially because of the revelations of the um, Dead Sea Scrolls in the past 20 years. And there's been a real effort for Christians to um, better understand their Bible. Um, I, I tend to um, refer people to particular scholars. I think for, for somebody from a Protestant background, James Tabor uh, is a scholar who's been trying to better understand Christianity. <laughs> Excuse me. From... A Protestant standpoint, um, but Father Stephen DeYoung 
from an Eastern Orthodox standpoint, uh, there's a scholar, John Bergsma, uh, um, who speaks from a, a Catholic standpoint. And um, I would say Robert Eisenman is the person that I feel from a Jewish standpoint uh, has helped a lot of people better understand the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and frankly, um, I think a lot of people would be surprised where the scholarship is at, whereas um, a lot of people in the pews have not really digested the, the news that the Dead Sea Scrolls has been revealing to us. Yeah, for sure. It, it is fascinating. Um, I, you know, honestly, I haven't like done a ton of study on the Dead Sea Scrolls. It, I definitely need to look more into it. But I mean, big reason why I have you on today is like to hear is because I'm one of those people who it's not by choice. It's just don't you don't have many opportunities. There's not there's not many practicing Jews in my area. And if they are, they're kind of like a closed knit community that, which I get it. Like, you know, the Jews have had it bad <laughs> all throughout history. Well, it's not just that. One of, yeah. one of the things that I have been trying to explain to a lot of, um, a lot of Christians uh -huh. uh, is that, so proselytizing really isn't part of Judaism. And this is, this is part of what, uh, people have been trying to understand better uh, what exactly the Christian Bible meant when it was talking about Judaizing. And Father Stephen DeYoung and uh, N.T. Wright similarly have been really trying to advocate for Christians to understand um, what that means in terms of Judaizing, what the discussion in Acts over Paul and the other apostles, it's it's a very, very different picture than I think a lot of people would get just by reading their uh, Bible, especially in translation, but also without the Jewish context. Um, and so Paul Vanderclay, um, who's very popular in this little corner of the internet, he's a Protestant pastor, like he's been going through the book of Romans um, and first Corinthians trying to better explain to his own congregation, but really our little corner, how things can be understood with a more solid grounding of Judaism. I'll give you an example. A lot of Christians believe that the synagogue services were things that were developed when the temple was destroyed and in no longer having the temple worship, then the rabbis had to come up with the synagogue services. And this is a very common belief among Christians which has a grain of truth to it, but you have to understand in the correct context. And the misunderstanding is that people think that 
the destruction we are talking about is the destruction of the second temple after Jesus, when it's actually the destruction of the first temple. Be and the way you can clearly see that is the Gospels talk about Jesus going to synagogue. And Acts talks about uh, Paul going to synagogue. And all of this happened before the destruction of the second temple. The synagogue services that we have today are a continuation of the services that, for example, uh, for example, Hosea talks about, but also Isaiah and the prophets instituted after the destruction of the first temple, not the second temple. And that's a very easy mistake to make. That's very common that, that you know, when you point out, well, where do you think the synagogue service that Jesus, like Jesus was going to the synagogue, right? And he lived within within walking distance of the of the temple yet he was he still regularly went to synagogue and paul certainly in in the diaspora but even in israel itself the land of israel was going to synagogue and all of this took place before the destruction of the first temple but unless somebody points that out to you you might not ever really think about it Here's the thing, too. I mean, most Christians don't even know about the events of the 60s uh, leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, even though Jesus talks about it explicitly. He predicts it explicitly all throughout the Gospels. So, But most Christians don't even know what that is, and it affects their view of eschatology, understanding like the end of the age. Um, and this is a discussion that's I've been having ongoing, talking about... Um, because I'm sure you're familiar with like dispensationalism or like rapture theology, stuff like that. That's what I grew up in. Um, and then I've spent the past few years kind of de deconstructing that and re-understanding re it and recognizing that, wait, Jesus was a Jew he, who's lived in the second period, second temple period. When he, when he talked about the end of the age, he was talking about the end of the temple age. I think so. I mean, it's very interesting. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily want to um, get into the discussions uh, as far as, um, you know, dispensationalism and uh, mm -hmm. millennialism and stuff, just because, like, I have my own views, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, but when it comes down to it, um, I think a lot of Christianity has has to deal with real questions and have a real mm -hmm. dialogue with uh, what we know of history and what we know of Judaism. And mm -hmm. that dialogue, unfortunately, has, has been missing from a lot of churches. Oh, for sure. And this is something I was, I was very surprised to learn. I have a lot of, I have made a lot of friends who have been kicked out from church after church for asking the wrong question. And, you know, that's, that's actually a, a very frightening prospect, you know, being, yeah. being excommunicated, being thrown out of your church. Um, so a lot of people, I, and I was not aware of this, but a lot of people are just 
so afraid to speak even to their own pastors about their questions, about their understanding. And that leads to a lot of additional misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it also leads to a lot of, it's a big reason why the church is discreet. The church overall, I don't know globally, but definitely in America is decreasing. A lot of people are leaving institutionalized churches and they're, but they're finding spiritual community outside the church so often because because we're all spiritual beings we're hungry we're hungry for that spiritual connection within a group of people who are seeking god we're it's just what we're made to do right so it's like uh, <laughs> you know there are people who are seeking it outside in places where it is safe to have these difficult conversations and and a big reason why i started this podcast was I, I got the idea because so often, especially in evangelical Christianity, which is, I guess is like the umbrella term for where my spiritual tradition is like in that arena of theology, Christianity, it's very combative. It's very much, I dig my, my doctrinal trench here. You're an enemy over there. We're fighting. And, but I was like, what if we actually just walk side by side as fellow travelers try to help one another try to learn from one another and that's kind of the idea behind it is because it does get it gets it's just not constructive at all to shame people to straw man people you know ad hominem people you know it just gets sickening and i all honestly have so many questions and want have so much to learn and even just for the few conversations I've had so far in the, this is my, now my 15th episode. Like it's just been, it's so, been so transformational just hearing so many different perspectives. One of the surprising things for me was to read Acts 5, um, the, the second half of the chapter mm -hmm. where um, Gamliel is quoted as um, speaking to the Sanhedrin. And it was actually very surprising to me to see that um, the Jewish position was so clearly spelled out, which is that, uh, you know, we don't have to, that there is no Jewish idea of me having to fight on behalf of God against the infidels because and and you also see that in john when the sanhedrin says to pilate it is not lawful for us to kill any man because ultimately god is the god of history god is with god always wins and so if i am right and someone else is wrong about god that's something that God can deal with. It's not, it's not something that I have to deal with. I don't have to go around, you know, um, only if there is some sort of special calling would that be. And, and that actually is why we, um, we don't proselytize and, um, even before Christianity, Judaism really did not proselytize. And that's why 
the the historians like N.T. Wright and Father Stephen DeYoung have been trying to re-understand this idea of Judaizers because really this idea that any Jew would go and tell Gentiles, oh, you need to convert to Judaism is honestly a little bizarre. And <laughs> well, really in the context, and, yeah. really in the context, it's Jewish Christians who feel like they need to create strict boundaries between who's really a, a, a follower of the way of mm. the rabbi or the, the prophet Yeshua, you know, who's really a follower of the way. Well, it's the ones who they have to be circumcised, right? They can't eat the un, the unclean animals, you know, and, but they realize, but what you recognize, I mean, all throughout old Testament scriptures and new is the purpose of circumcision is really a demarcation to it to tell whether or not you're in the family of God, right? It's kind of a right circumcision is kind of like a it's like a symbol of like be belonging, right, to the Jewish people. Well, see, that's the thing. Okay, I have to say that this is part right, of a conversation I've I've been having with with Christians, and it, it's it's an important part of the conversation that, for example, I've been having with Father Stephen DeYoung, and trying to understand precisely what. Acts is talking about. And certainly what you're talking, what you are saying is the majority opinion among certainly Protestants. And really, I would I would say the vast majority of Christians. So you're you're not saying anything that a, a majority of Christians would disagree with. It is something that I I, as a Jew, do disagree with, and it is something that in the new perspectives of Paul and what is termed in academic circles as Paul within Judaism, which Father Stephen DeYoung, for example, is an advocate of, as a Christian, as a as an Eastern Orthodox priest, sees it very differently in ways that are surprising to, to a lot of Christians. And so it's funny, I am not convinced of the Paul within Judaism um, position. I, I actually, I don't want to get too controversial. My views on Paul are very different from Christian views on Paul. Don't be um, afraid of being controversial. <laughs> I don't think, I I think Paul hijacked Christianity from Jesus. That's my view. And that is a view that some academics do share. Um, really a lot of a lot of a lot of people don't share, in including basically most Christians, almost all Christians. And um so the Paul within Judaism position is something I am very sympathetic to because it would bring Christianity much closer to Judaism in ways that I find amazing. So I, when I talk to Father uh, Stephen DeYoung, um, he actually referred me to this book, Orthodoxy, Christian and Jewish. And, you know, you think of that, like, what do Orthodox Christians and Orthodox Jews have in common? 
Well, apparently a lot more than I ever imagined. Um, and that is very surprising to me. Um, I am not convinced that Paul was preaching the Christianity that Father Stephen DeYoung believes Paul was preaching. But if he were, then we're talking about a Christianity that is far, far closer to Judaism than anything contemplated in Nicaea and contemplated by the vast majority of Christians. Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting um, topic and way of looking at it because just a cursory reading of Paul versus Jesus, it seems un almost contradictory in a lot of ways. And a lot of and that's why dispensationalists that's yeah. why dispensationalists will, will actually say Jesus wasn't talking to Christian. He was well, only talking to the Jews. Well, here's a very fascinating thing. Yes, exactly. Well, Jesus was yeah because there were no Christians. You know when Jesus was around, there were <laughs> there were just Jews, right? And and Jesus didn't really talk that much to Gentiles because. Um, he wasn't really trying to proselytize. There were he he hinted at it, like with the with the um, the Samarian woman, you know, at the well. You got these hints that oh, the 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 kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Yahweh is expanding, and it is it's taking in and and it's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, right? That through his seed all all nations would be blessed. Well, That's what I, is, how this, I see it. Right. So this is this is actually how. Um, Judaism, I, I would argue, has always believed that the God of Israel is the God of the entirety of humanity, humanity because there is only one God. Mm -hmm. And this is why I personally think that, for example, in Romans, when Paul is preaching that the Gentiles are adopted into the household of God, or grafted, grafted in, in yeah right i i find i find those statements actually to be kind of offensive and really father stephen yeah because they they deny the oneness of god the idea that mm. gentiles would need to be adopted into the house of god like whose house were they part of before they were adopted like who was their father before? And so Father Stephen, for example, has a very different understanding of Paul and also N.T. Wright. And this is the Paul within Judaism idea. Mm -hmm. But that's very different from what you're expressing and how I actually read Paul in, in Romans. And that's part of the discussion that we're having that's so intense and interesting in this part it of is. the internet. Wow. This is really fascinating because I, I love N.T. Wright and I've really gotten into him in the past few years. And I'm also fascinated by the new perspective in Paul. I think it's a really interesting way of looking at things because <clears throat> the old, the quote unquote old perspective is basically like the standard Protestant uh, reformed perspective where it's like um, the old perspective has this idea that like oh the Jews were always striving and working for God's approval but they could never reach it until until 
Jesus taught them about grace and salvation. It's like, well, they probably, they didn't really feel that way in the, in the past, right? They always felt like they had a connection to God and like, they didn't feel right. like they had to earn it. <laughs> yes. Anti um, right has certainly, I, I think moved Christianity much closer to Judaism. And I would say to historical truth, but um, yeah, this is revolutionary. A lot of these things, and I, I keep on saying to Father Stephen, you know, you don't have to convince me. You have to convince the rest of Christianity. Because mm -hmm. if the rest of Christianity actually believed and interpreted their own religion the way that you interpret it, then Judaism and Christianity are so much closer than I ever, ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And most people would at all imagine yeah what do you think i mean have you done much study of the the letter to the galatians so this is one of the things so we have a friend in common jason um who i have a bible study with on a regular mm -hmm. basis um and it's it's really been a great blessing to me because jason is somebody who really knows his hebrew bible a lot better than i would say i do he's um, <laughs> he's very Bible. He's very Bible. He's a big Bible guy, which I really appreciate yeah. about him. And the I Old love Testament. it. I mean, yeah, he 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 really knows his Bible. And I asked him to kind of like explain Galatians to me because I so when I read the Gospels, what happened was I found myself in a situation where I had a lot of Christians who were asking me questions about Judaism. And they were asking me what Jesus meant about certain things. And I found myself for the first time reading um, the Gospels, not trying to understand the Christian position, but trying to understand what Jesus was saying in context so that I could help explain the Jewish context to Christians. And what I found was incredibly surprising to me, which was I found a Jesus who is very, very Jewish and not, not in the simple sense of, oh, he's somebody who was born to a Jewish family, but somebody who speaks the vocabulary of Judaism um, who, whose words fit right in with the Talmud. Um, and in fact, he seems to be engaging in Talmud, right? In, in the study, the, and Talmud, right? There's the book known as the Talmud. Actually, there's two of them, the two Talmuds. But those are records of Talmudic debates, Talmud is a hermeneutic. It's a way of looking at our scriptures that Judaism teaches that I expected would be foreign to Jesus. And what I discovered was that Jesus was engaging in Talmud Torah. He was engaging in that hermeneutic. And that was very, very surprising to me. And what has been a feeling that I have and various other people I have spoken to similarly have had is 
Paul does not have the Jewish flavor that Jesus did. He, he does not speak in Talmudic terms. And that's, Father Stephen DeYoung would say, oh no, he actually does. And that he's trying to explain the same things. So he, he reads Paul in concordance with Second Temple Judaism which is very, very different from how Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Protestant reformers, certainly, but even a lot of the earlier Christian fathers. And so I find myself in a weird position where um, I am kind of rooting for Christians to adopt a position I don't actually believe myself, which is Father Stephen's position, which is that Paul was actually trying to explain the same Judaism as Jesus was teaching, because I think Jesus was, in fact, just teaching Judaism. Well, it's really fascinating in, in the book of Acts, like this written by Luke, you know, you actually have Paul debating with Peter and James and debating with them on should we let the Gentiles in should should we should we force them to be circumcised should they not be circumcised should they should they eat certain foods should they not eat certain foods and it's and Peter ends up just being like you know what I'm sensing that I'm sensing that you are called to to go and preach to the to the Gentiles I've Peter felt more called to speak to the Jewish Christians, you know? So it kind of was like, it was a different um, calling. So I think we also have to understand that context too, where Paul wasn't really super accepted among Christian Jews, Jewish Christians, you know? So, Whereas, so that's, yeah. so a, a, a very important question in determining where you as a, as a Christian stand on Paul and Judaism is how do you interpret what happened in Acts 21? And um, the old perspective of Paul, um, what I would say is the most popular perspective of Paul was that James was confronting Paul and Paul should have in fact um, confronted Paul in a similar, uh, uh, James in a similar manner as what's called the confrontation of Antioch with Peter. And that, that has been the interpretation I think most Christians have mm -hmm. of, of Acts 21. Whereas the Paul within Judaism um, interpretation is radically different from that. And believes that in fact Paul and James were in accord and what that results in is a very very interpretation different interpretation of the entirety of Paul's ministry than basically what Christians have believed for 2000 years yeah i mean it, it is interesting to think that like it's not like, oh, the church was started and everything was rainbows and unicorns. It's like, no, there was ongoing debate. There was diversity of opinion. And then even for the next 
three 300 years there was lots of persecution and ultimately there wasn't even a, a biblical canon compiled until the 300s so a lot of things were up in the air for the early church and there was there was a lot of debate on who is jesus what is his nature you know um is there is there a trinity is it is it unit unitarian is it like so it's very interesting um the more you look back I had, a, I had a friend i was talking to a friend recently and he's like orthodoxy like christian orthodoxy is always retroactive it's not like there was a point where like orth orthodoxy was was started it's like no it's like it's retroactive it's in the 300s they decided they looking back they're like oh this is generally what christians believed it's not like there was a starting point it's like it's retroactive they're looking back and deciding okay that that's what was orthodox this thread we can follow this thread for the past 300 years up to now you know which is really interesting to think about like and it kind of it's hard for protestants who read the bible very rigidly you know um the sola scriptura kind of people who think that this bible's like fell from the heavens and you know <laughs> it's like no well, part part of the problem really is also that when you're reading the bible in translation you're mm. reading someone's interpretation of what those words mean yeah and um, that's not necessarily the exact same thing as you would necessarily get um, if you were reading the Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic yourself. Mm -hmm. And that that's also been a great cause of diversity among Christian views is, well, which translation? Mm -hmm. And um, yes or no translation, right? Mm -hmm yeah oh, there's something else i was gonna say too i was thinking about oh i was thinking about paul and james because what's fascinating is you know paul has a big emphasis on grace like being saved by grace through faith right um but then you have the letter of james to the christian hebrews in the diaspora and he's writing to them and telling them it's not all just about faith it's faith without works is dead so you better be doing things you know so so it's like james has a different opinion than paul and he's almost responding to paul when paul's talking about grace faith uh, it's all about it's you're not saved by works but you're saved by faith through by grace through faith but james almost has this like different perspective where he's like well you're not just saved by by faith by putting your faith in in jesus you're saved by doing and, and when you read jesus jesus talks about how it's not those who say lord lord it's those who do uh the works of the will of my father who is in heaven you know uh which is very fascinating because protestantism is all about not burdening yourself with work working for your salvation but but receiving it as a gift which is like it's it's, it's funny because in Catholicism, you have that you have the opposite. It's a, in Catholicism, it's a lot more based on your works. What what do you do to earn God's grace? It kind of has that that um, more sentiment, even though on paper it's not that way. Well, yeah, you, I mean, you are you are giving a very Protestant interpretation, which is very common, and it is mm -hmm. in fact how Martin Luther really did did interpret the Bible, and he want he called the book of James and epistle of straw. And he wanted to, in fact, 
take yeah. it out of the Bible. Right. <laughs> because it contradicts um, his opinion. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, what father Stephen would say to me is that that is a bad interpretation of Paul. I am not convinced that it's a bad interpretation of Paul. I think Paul did hijack Christianity from James and Jesus, but um, the the new perspectives are people who want to read James and Peter uh, and Paul not as disagreeing, but actually agreeing with each other, which is a very different interpretation than vast majority of Christians have. So yeah, I mean, the question is, were James and Paul disagreeing? And mm. I would say that they were. And I, um, and that is also, for example, Haim Maccabee and uh, Robert Eisenman's view, and and James Tabor's view as well. Whereas I think a lot of more lowercase o Orthodox Christians, Protestants. Catholics and Eastern Orthodox would have been trying to reconcile James and Paul. And that's a very different picture than Martin Luther painted. And so would require Protestants to really change their theology if they were to agree with that. Yeah, I think what's, I mean, what's fascinating about protestantism it's it's actually a really progressive liberal strain of christianity when you think about it because in the context of 2000 years of history it 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 starts in a, a conversation that's new you know to <laughs> that's just new to the table which is very ironic because you know if you ask protestants now they don't like the term liberal or progressive but i think it's it's apt when you have 1500 years of christian history and then um and then you have am i are you still there yeah oh okay sorry i thought it froze again um yeah you have 1500 years of christian history and then the last 500 years you have this new strain that has that has this idea that um that uh, we should be sola scriptura and that like um which doesn't you can't really find in 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 historical global Christianity, um, you have obviously you have different views. Of the Catholic Church, which has the papacy, you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has the canon of faith, which is like kind of just like the community. What does the community believe? Which I think is kind of Jewish, right? Like idea. Yeah, of like, I mean, you believe that that is that is the interesting thing. I in my discussions with the Eastern Orthodox, I have found Eastern Orthodoxy to be much, much closer to Judaism than um, certainly Protestant Christianity mm -hmm. and even uh, Catholicism. Yeah. Well, before, you know, we've already like gone pretty deep into some weeds, although we haven't gotten super specific. I think we're going to have, we're going to need multiple conversations, but let's backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about what was it like growing up as a traditional Jew? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what did that look like? So, I mean, one of the things I've been noticing is actually how much my Judaism what has been affected by Protestant uh, presuppositions. 
because I did grow up in the United States and um, my parents, um, they were not very, you know, I did not have a lot of Jewish education uh, really until I went off to college. And so for me, it's been a, a big journey of, in fact, seeing that I was already living in a very Protestant Christian culture and how much that had had affected me. And so my, and so we talked a lot, of, a little bit about this before uh, we started, but there, most Jews do not live as Orthodox Jews. And most synagogues, especially in the United States, um, are, are not Orthodox synagogues. Uh, <coughs> that's increasingly been become the case in the United States. And the chief rabbinate in Israel, and, and so officially the religion of Israel is Orthodox Judaism. But especially in the United States, over 90% of uh, Jews go to reform and conservative um, synagogues and don't let conservative, the term conservative, big C conservative um, kind of um, set you astray because the conservative movement was a part of reform Judaism, which named itself after the Protestant Reformation. And they broke off as the more conservative wing of liberal Judaism, unorthodox Judaism. And um, especially in the United States, really until after World War II, the... <coughs> presence of Orthodox Jews was actually very, very small in the United States. And Jewish Orthodoxy, I believe, is actually flourishing in ways that it really didn't, um, certainly 50, 60 years ago. And so <laughs> there has been a process of rediscovery in my own personal life of what Orthodox Judaism is, um, as opposed to reform and conservative, which reform and conservative are in many ways very Christian, I would say. And so it's it's been kind of funny to see a linkage with Eastern Orthodox Christianity today because there are a lot of things that come from a view of the world that's pre-modern, that's before modernity and the enlightenment. There was a Jewish enlightenment. There was a Christian enlightenment. And um, a lot of those things just seeped through the culture in ways that now, I think, especially in this little corner, especially with the work 
of people like John Verveke and Jordan Peterson, we've really started to question. And I think that questioning is good. Um, I think the people who want to somehow go back to pre-modern times are making a mistake. I don't think you can ever go back in time. Um, but what's called post-modernism post and post-modernity has shown a lot of valid criticisms of modernity that make people like, I don't know if you follow Jonathan Pajot or really a lot of Orthodox Christianity and Orthodox Judaism, I would say also as well. It's I'm just funny. getting involved yeah. in those. I'm, I'm just getting myself involved in those conversations. I mean, uh, although with my friends, my friends who a lot of them aren't believers or Christians or whatever, but we have a lot of philosophical discussions and theological discussions. Um, and the topic of postmodernism has been a big discussion in the past five or so years. Um, and my friends, even my friends, they, they've kind of, it's kind of like a pendulum, right? It's like, oh, well, postmodernism true, then boom, like nothing's real, like nothing matters. Everything's kind of just subjective, but then they swing back. They're like, well, actually there's something, there's something centering us. There's something, there's some sort of foundation that we need to land on. And it is an interesting discussion, but they admit, and I admit it's a good tool because it's a good tool for perspective taking. Everybody from a postmodern uh, framework, you, you you get this idea that like everybody's experience is subjective, right? Um, but then it kind of throws away objective reality or objective truth where if that's the case, then we can't even communicate and language isn't even an adequate vehicle, but it is. So what do we do with that? Anyway, I cut you off. <laughs> No, uh, you, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, classic theism is, is what um, some of us have been talking about, um, including John Verveke, who himself, so he came from a very conservative evangelical background. And so he left that and became an atheist. And then he eventually started calling himself and got involved in Buddhism and... Um, called himself a non-theist and now he himself finds himself coming back to discover parts of christianity and classic theism which he didn't realize existed um and that's why i mean i do recommend um john verveke to a lot of people um for who especially atheists but for Christians, I would also really recommend work of jo Jonathan Pajot, Paul Vanderclay, um, Father Stephen DeYoung. I would also really recommend James Tabor. I've been I've been recommending James Tabor to a lot of Christians because I think he he has been bridging the academic understanding of Christianity with a faithful understanding of Christianity in ways that aren't as antagonistic as, for example, the new atheists. Yeah, I mean, I think the discussion of new atheism has just gotten old. And I think most people are kind of like, all right, we're done debating 
we're done hearing these debates between your fundamentalist Baptist Christian and this um what's it uh, Richard Dawkins-esque like atheist it's like it's just disgust it's just sickening it's like all right yeah anyway I want to get into that everything I've noticed because because even my discussions I just had a discussion with my friend who's an atheist materialist but we actually agree on a lot of things around metaphysics we agree a lot on a lot of things around morality and politics and whatnot the only big difference between us is that he doesn't believe that there's a transcendent being whereas I do it's like it's kind of interesting I feel like a lot of things are melding together and mixing there's just so much mixing that's happening especially with with the internet age especially in the past couple of years because everybody's online everybody's talking online more than they ever were and they already were a lot before but now even more ever since the pandemic so it's like it's interesting how like i would have i probably would have not gone out of my way to have a discussion with a jewish person a couple yeah. of years ago but now i am you know <laughs> so it's like and where would you have found me like e even if you did want to yeah I didn't even know what Zoom was before COVID, but anyway, <laughs> here I am. But yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And I'm definitely going to check those people out. I, I've heard those names brought up by, um, have you met Cal too? Yes. You met Cal. I've heard a lot of that brought up by um, Luke Thompson as well. He's big on those guys, uh, mentions them all the time. But um, getting back to your story, so like within traditional Judaism you know here you are now you're middle-aged 45 years old you said you admitted your age so I'm not afraid to say it <laughs> some people are weird about age you know <laughs> but anyway no I I am I am the age that I am at, at I I don't I don't wish to be younger or older I am what what I am how stoic of you <laughs> anyway um <laughs> Anyway, going back to your experience of that tradition, here you are now having conversations about theology, Christianity, Judaism, metaphysics. Um, why is this important to you? You know, going back, were there any experiences that you had that made it important to you, that stuck with you up to this point? Even though, even if you're not like quote unquote practicing orthodox jew you still you're hella jewish you know? <laughs> yeah i mean so i have to say um for me um really the existence of god was never a question it was a question of where do i find god and when i first started i figured i would start with my own tradition and i would start with what i knew and that was incredibly faith reaffirming um and i was very happy within orthodox judaism um but <laughs> a series of twists and turns made made it very clear to me that simply god wasn't what god seemed to want in my life was not what I envisioned, which was living a life of a Hasidic Jew, um, really, you know, I, I, 
the one year I was living in Jerusalem was heaven. And in a very real sense, I envision going to heaven, having that life again, where I was spending two hours a day praying. I was keeping kosher. I was keeping all the holidays. I was spending the rest of the day just studying Talmud and Judaism. And I really loved it. I, I loved it. But it didn't seem to be my place in life. And that was that was soul crushing. That was incredibly depressing. And that caused me to have a crisis around the time I turned 30, wondering, okay, what is it that God wants from me? And that's why I gave up observance because it seemed to me that that's not what God wanted. And that's not because I believed it was legalistic or anything like that. It really seemed like it wasn't what God wanted for me. And so later, um, I was involved in the Peter, uh, Jordan Peterson community because I was dealing with my own depression and my own lack of meaning in life. And I found myself surrounded by a lot of people who had very similar uh, desires, who had a lot of questions about Judaism. And these were people that I would never have been um, in contact with if I was living the life that I wished for myself, the very insular Jewish life that I thought God wanted. And so um, for the past two years, I've kind of felt a calling to answer questions about Judaism. And it makes mm. me feel like maybe that is why God didn't want me to live the life that I envisioned for myself. You know, what's hilarious, what's really interesting is it's almost analogous to Paul in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> well, I would say you're, Jonah. You're, I would say more like Jonah. but Oh, yes. Jonah, sure. But uh, no, but, but also, I'm, I'm thinking of Paul. Also, like, you Paul, know, yeah. I, because I he was, he was a Jew. Well, well, he was a Jew. If he was and a Jew. <laughs> you, so you think that's debatable whether or not he was even Jew? I, I, um, yeah, I, apparently I he was a Pharisee, right? No, that is certainly what he claimed. Um, well, more so Luke claimed in acts. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's certainly the traditional Christian view. I, I have my doubts. I do okay. view myself a lot like Paul and Martin Luther actually, but, um, Mostly because I find myself to be a kind of a liminal figure. Um, mm, I don't. Yeah. I don't think of myself as a, a saintly person because I know much more about my life than you do. <laughs> no, I hear you, and you know, it's Paul was the same way too. He talks about how like I'm the chief of sinners. You know that famous phrase where he claims to be chief of sinners that he he's like i'm the, nothing special there's nothing holy about me i'm just i'm just called by god to preach to the gentiles 
to proselytize to them, basically to witness to them, disciple them, help build churches in Greek Greece. And I think I think that's a big that's another angle too. It's like not only do we have to read Paul in the in the context of Judaism, we have to read him in the context of Greek uh, philosophy. It's huge all throughout his writings. You have all this talk about like the archons and the powers and, and principalities and stuff. It's stuff that sounds very Gnostic-y and very like Plato-y and philosophy, Greek philosophy stuff. And like, and he, he knew his Greek philosophy too. He knew how to speak to the Greeks and he would go to their, their um, whatever, wherever they got together to talk like Mars Hill or whatever, like in, um, in Acts 17, when he goes to talk to the Jews in, um, in Athens, he goes and tries to reason with them. Um, and they're very interested in his conversation because, but he's speaking about, you know, resurrection of the body and they don't like that concept because in Platonism, they like the concept of leaving the evil body and going up to be in the heavens or wherever. Yeah. Disembodied existence. But anyway, um, yeah. So what I was saying is it's kind of funny. You feel called not, not to be like Peter, who's like kind of remains more faithful to the tradition, but to kind of live amongst the, <laughs> the outsiders and, and, and preach and, and uh, help them understand the tradition a little bit better, which is, you know, it's kind of funny, but like it, Jonah it too, maybe. Yeah, Were you it kicking is. and I screaming mean, like Jonah? Yes, very much kicking and screaming. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, is, it is difficult within a Jewish framework because we are against proselytizing. We are against, and, you know, this is the funny thing. Father Stephen DeYoung actually thinks that it's funny, he, he sees a lot more parallels with Paul because he interprets Paul within Judaism as not really proselytizing, not telling. Um, and that's a very different interpretation of Paul than I think the vast majority of Christians have ever had. I, I, I highly recommend anybody who's interested to really look into Paul within Judaism and it would so a question I would ask any Christian is would they say that a Jew who has been baptized and believes in Jesus should <laughs> should eat pork right and for 2,000 years, basically, all of Christianity has said, well, yeah, why wouldn't they eat pork? All food has been made clean. And Father Stephen and this idea of Paul within Judaism teaches that, in fact, Paul would not teach Jews that they should eat pork, that Paul would not teach Jews that they should not circumcise their children. And that is a very different view of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian than what the vast majority of Christians have. The way I've always understood it is, 
and I'm no scholar, but I think I've just, I've been swimming in the water long enough that through osmosis, I've gained enough knowledge to say, I think, especially in the book of Galatians, I think it's really hard to, um, it's really hard to understand without understanding some context in there. But basically, I think Paul, Paul talks about being, being all things to all people. So he was very pragmatic um when it came to gentiles when he was hanging out with gentiles he would act like a gentile he would do what the gentiles do in order to kind of um he would he would change himself the way he acted in order to acclimate uh, assimilate to their culture in order to make it easier to proselytize i think and similarly when he was talking to jews he would act like a jew you know he would he wouldn't need the pork he wouldn't he and i think he didn't he didn't discourage uh christians or gentiles from being um circumcised what it was was he didn't want it to be a necessary condition for the justification and the question then comes in comes down to what does justification mean and like people like nt Wright would uh or people like martin luther or the protestants would say justification means being being put right in the eyes of god like in a salvific sense like oh all your debts have been paid you you're no longer going to be people of god being seen as belonging to the people of god um and that's what soul was against he was against circumcision being a necessary condition to be a part of the group a part of the people of God or what God was doing through the Jesus movement. You know what I'm saying? Does that kind of make I, sense? I, I understand what you're saying. And, and you are in fact, I mm -hmm. mean, this is, this is the traditional understanding um, mm -hmm. that, that many, many Christians have. Um, the problem with this interpretation is that really within Second Temple Judaism, and I would say modern Judaism. That isn't how we have ever really seen being God's people. And so it. So what does it mean to be a Jew? <laughs> Tell me. Good question. And, and, and that is the important question. Um, Within Judaism, we've never believed, and I, I think this is absolutely clear, we've never believed that to be a Jew means that we're going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell. That's not a Jewish belief, and it's never been a Jewish belief. The Jewish belief is that Israel and the children of Jacob specifically have a specific role as a light onto the nations and as a priesthood and the elder brother, right? Um, it says in Deuteronomy, Beni Bechori Israel, my firstborn son is Israel. And to be a Jew is to be a part of a priesthood of God for the entire world. And so 
a Paul within Judaism understanding is, is different in that it doesn't make circumcision a, an issue of salvation. It makes it a question of priesthood. And yes, Orthodox Judaism taught and still teaches that Israel, that I, as someone who was born into a specific priesthood, a priesthood that you can, in fact, join by converting to be a part of Israel, is, is a specific priesthood, whereas a lot of Christians would say that that role of priest has been fulfilled in the life of Jesus, a very, a, a particular Jew. And this gets down to the question mm. of monoyanis, right? Only begotten mm. son. And it's, it's a very different way of viewing both Judaism and Christianity than vast majority of people have had for 2000 years. So I think, I think something what you what you the way you describe Judaism. I think that's what Jesus and the and the original apostles meant by the church. The exact way you, you explained the church, the body of Christ, and the the ministry of Jesus was not to create these in groups and out groups. It's not the purpose, but it became that. But really, I think the church is meant to, to serve the world on behalf of God, you know, as, as priests. Like, and, and actually, that's how Paul describes the church. It's a, you're a royal priesthood. He tells it, he tells it to the Gentiles who, who are now followers of the way, that you're, you're a royal priesthood. So he's, he's like taking a, a title that's normally given to the, the Jews, the, the, the people who are supposed to be the people of God, and, he, and he's attributing it to now um, Gentile followers of Yeshua. So and, it's like, and I would say that's, that is, in fact, how he hijacked Christianity from James and Peter and um, Jesus. Because I agree with you. Uh, you know, when I read Jesus, he is, in fact, he seems to me very quite clearly preaching Judaism, whereas Paul has his new religion that he claims is the religion of Jesus, but I would say isn't. What would you say about Jesus's, uh, the Great Commission for, from Jesus to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and whatnot? Like the whole idea of creating disciples you think Jesus was kind of giving a different spin on Judaism in that sense? Well, I mean, it, it. I have to point out first of all that this is a vision of of Jesus after the crucifixion, and um, mm -hmm. I think the Trinitarian formula there is is in fact kind of foreign to. Um, Judaism, I think you can interpret it very differently than 
Christians have, and there are people who do, in ways that would be consonant with Judaism, but they are not the views that most Christians have about what the Great Commission would teach. Yeah, a lot of people think of it, I mean, imperialism and colonialism has been um, encouraged or has hijacked the Great Commission in a lot of sense. Well, we're, yeah, we're sending your priests forward to to go in and make disciples of, of these indigenous people, but also we're sending in our, our armies too, in case they get hostile. <laughs> so, <laughs> and also we want to take all their resources and bring it back to our homeland. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of it, unfortunately, the Great Commission has been hijacked by colonialism and imperialism all too often. But yeah, but even just the concept of making disciples, I mean, that's not foreign to Judaism, right? What what does the rabbi Jesus do? He makes this 12 disciples, right? And then they disciple other people. And then it's kind of the idea of like creating networks of discipleship, right? Well, the question becomes, you know, when when Jesus says that you should not go to the cities of the Gentiles, uh, you know, what exactly that is he saying there that he only came to the lost sheep of Israel? Um, and really, I mean, this is this is part of what Judaism has been ha continues to teach is that our job is to be better people and to teach within our own community to follow God and to repent um, on behalf of the know, world, right? On behalf of the world, certainly, because we do believe that if if we live correctly and rightly, then we are in fact representing God in the world and mm. we are being a light onto the nations and, mm. you know, in, in a way purifying the world towards what God wants. But mm. it's, it's not a direct relationship where I have to go knock on your door. If God needs to, if God wants yeah. to knock on your door, he's plenty of capable of doing that. And the, yeah. the question becomes, what is my calling? Mm -hmm. What is my commission to do such thing? And I don't see it anywhere in the Bible that I have any mm -hmm. such commission or calling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. I was thinking about oh I was thinking about how Jesus in the, in the um the sermon on the mount he talks about you are the light of the world you are a city on a hill um and wh what is he talking about he's talking about Jerusalem right he's talking about the great cuz it was considered a city on a hill right um and I keep coming back to this because this is where my brain's been at the past couple of years Jesus yeah, the message of Jesus sounds very different than the message of Paul. And a big reason is because, well, I do believe that Jesus' primary primary um, objective was to stop, to, to help the Jews um, put down their weapons against the Romans, you know, um, because at that time, you had the Jewish wars. What's really fascinating, you know how like the whole scene where Jesus comes into town 
and he's riding on a donkey and they're waving palm palm leaves but do you do you know what the palm branches represent well Ho hosanna this yeah i mean so during during the festivals of sukkot the palm branches um are part of the uh celebration and one of the things that was going on um at the time was that during the three pilgrimage festivals sukkot uh the festival of booths being one of them um it was a it was a time of a lot of nationalistic fervor mm. and that is i mean one of the understandings um of jesus ministry was that in fact he was teaching like the pharisees not like the zealots or um yeah that that really it was a matter of repentance and that's that's something we still yeah. you know have to re-emphasize to people who sometimes think that unfortunately which isn't a very jewish idea i would say that we can somehow take the redemption and the coming of the messiah by physical means whereas mm. the bible says uva goel um, and shall come to zion a redeemer to those who repent of sin within jacob mm. yeah so the other thing i i learned was that the the palm branches that you know in the catholic tradition we have the palm sunday right mm -hmm. um well palm sunday you have them waving palm branches at jesus and yelling hosanna which means rescue us right rescue us rescue us save us from the Ro the romans that's what they wanted jesus to do save us from the romans um by means of force you know <laughs> be our be our king like david be david you're the son of david come like david be a warrior um and jesus wasn't which is it's just so funny you know it's so <laughs> imagine wanting jesus to be a warrior and here he comes he's just like kind of like this hippie like guy <laughs> but anyway um the the palm branches are you familiar with the maccabean revolution that happened yes. 150 years before jesus so when they're waving their branches they're saying the same thing. They're like, they you can be like the Maccabean revolution. Like, let's have another insurrection. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, even today we have uh, we have similar people who look towards the Maccabees, and um, this this is one of the oldest discussions within Judaism, in which um, so modern day Judaism comes from rabbinic. Judaism is is from Pharisaic Judaism, and the rabbis did not include the book of Mac, uh, Maccabees in the Bible because it was, in fact, teaching this um, John Hyrcanus model of redemption, which, I mean, I would I would call heretical, and the rabbis did call heretical, and. Jesus seems to have equally been been very critical of. Um, I would just say that, you know, the the surprising thing is that 
modern day Judaism so much agrees with, uh, with criticizing this concept of the Messiah as somebody who comes and just slaughters a lot of people. That's not, I would say that that's not a Jewish Messiah at all. It certainly isn't a Pharisaic concept of the Messiah, but was in fact common among certainly the Zealots. Yeah, because what's interesting is that the crucifixion you had, you had Jesus of Nazareth, but then you have you had another Jesus there. Um, I forget what his name, Jesus Barabbas or something like that. I, yeah. I forget who it was, but he was actually a Jewish zealot rebel against Rome and they let him go and, and put Jesus in his place, which is kind of signaling like who did Jesus die for? He died for the zealots who were re rebelling against, you know, he made, he made himself a mockery for the, on the sake, on the behalf of those zealots, you know, um, and, and literally saved a zealot and died in his place, which is really has a deep meaning there, you know? Um, it's really beautiful, actually. Oh, there was something, oh yeah. Speaking of um, Paul and Jesus, the other interesting thing about Paul is that he never, he never quotes Jesus. The other, the other interesting thing about Jesus is Paul never mentions anything about Gehenna, but Jesus is talking about Gehenna and the Valley of Hinnom so often. Mm. It's, that's just, it's really interesting. And like in the discussion of like, uh, I'm sure Jason and Cal or whatever may have talked to you a little bit about like the discussion around like hell. What is hell? Universalism, salvation. What does that look like? Is it annihilation? Is it this or that? What's fascinating is if Paul, if so many Protestants and so many Christians throughout history really seem to turn to Paul first and then Jesus is like, okay, I guess we can turn to Jesus too. It should be the other way around. I think we should, I think we should read, we should read Paul through the lens of Jesus, but that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? If, if Paul didn't really quote Jesus that often. Um, so the, I mean, you're, still, you're, you're, you're really getting into that whole discussion of uh -huh. was Paul teaching the same message as Jesus or did Paul hijack Christianity <laughs> from mm -hmm. Jesus? Yeah. Well, now you're making me think because I guess I haven't really given it too much thought. I've, I've given it some thought because I recognize if you approach Christianity from a, a Christocentric um, view, like if you start with Jesus first and work your way out to Paul, it looks ends up looking like a much healthier, meaningful religion than it does if I work start with Paul and then work my way out to Jesus, which makes no sense. <laughs> Also, I mean, a lot of people forget that the books, um, that the Gospels were written after the letters of Paul. And so them, yeah. when, when I read the Gospels, you know, I see a lot of interpretation there from the authors of the Gospels, which try to, in fact, um, make... Paul and Jesus agree in ways that I don't think is actually in the text itself. And mm -hmm. that is part of my argument that in fact, the message of Jesus was hijacked by Paul. Hmm. 
but he like got in there before the the people the gospel writers could even compile all the stories and and create interpretive because that's what's that's one thing that's really hard for people to understand too and and one thing that's really helped me is um are you familiar with the bible project yes. tim mackey yes. it's great i really like i really like their work a lot i mean what do you what, what do you what are your thoughts on the bible project I do not like the Bible Project. Oh, no. You don't like the Bible Project. What's wrong with the Bible Project? Um, I have, every time I have watched any of their videos, I have been shocked by their rampant misinterpretation of my Bible in ways that <laughs> I, it's, it's just offensive. I'm sorry, but it's just offensive. Wow. Can you give me an example? I'm just curious. Yeah. So, for example, um, it was the first place where I encountered this idea that Jesus, that Moses was a murderer. Uh, I, I, I was, I was floored by, and I mean. They, they reread my Bible in a very, very different um, way than anything I ever imagined. And then they represent it, their interpretation as if it's just a plain summary when in fact it's cherry picking and um confirmation like just searching through my bible to find confirmation for a lot of beliefs that i find absolutely repugnant wow you know what's fascinating i've noticed about tim Mackey is that i li i've listened to some of his recent sermons and he admits that his views have changed over time and if you look at his earlier Bible project stuff and then look at what he's doing now, he he's developing and growing in, in his understanding of, and he's, and he's, but he's been studying Hebrew scriptures for a long time. I think what's one thing that's helpful, even if like some of his interpretation or, or the, the conclusions he comes to may not be the best for a Jew. I think what he does recognize and he's helped me recognize is these design patterns all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It's written so geniusly. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, so part of it is that I, I think that he is looking for specific patterns. And when you read the Bible, looking for particular patterns, you're, you, I mean, this is what we call eisegesis, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to read what the text says out of it, you try to read into the text. And yeah. um, I mean, I don't know if if his views have, have changed dramatically over the past few years. I hope they have. But, um, you know, he comes from the... Uh, either he or his partner comes from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Hebrew Department, which um, is where Michael Heiser is at. And mm. just their view of the Hebrew Bible is just very, very different from anything I ever considered. And 
Um, yeah, I have to, I mean, they, they, be, they, the Bible project gets brought up a lot in this corner of the internet and people mm -hmm. are like, Oh, it's great. I love it. Um, and for me, um, my experience has been very, very different. Really? That's so interesting. I mean, can you give me any other, so you were saying something about how Moses didn't murder. There wasn't, didn't he, didn't he kill someone while saving a, uh, right. He, he uh, killed he, he killed someone while saving a slave. Yeah. And to for us within Judaism, this is one of the ways in which the Bible shows us the um the heroism of of Moses being willing to give up his status as a prince of Egypt as a uh, person who was benefiting from the system of Egypt and um, gives that all up in order to save the life of a um, of a slave. And for us, that is what marks his self-sacrifice, which makes him a the type of person that we would want as a leader within Israel. We follow the archetype of an of a suffering servant, someone who lays down their privilege and power for the sake of others, which I think exactly. is, is is Jesus. You know, it points us to Jesus in a lot of ways. Well, you, you could say that, but if you turn him into a murderer, then he's nothing like Jesus. You know, so it's like semantics then. I guess a murder well, is someone semantics. who kills, right? The question, the question of murder, right? What, so the, the Bible says, thou shalt not murder, right? Lo tirzach, as opposed to you shall not kill. And knowing when to kill, right? Like the Bible says, there is a season for everything. Knowing when to kill and when not to kill, that is uh, the the real definition of a great le leader and a rabbi. And, you know, it depends on your interpretation of Jesus. Jesus says, I, I come not to bring the uh, peace, by the, but the sword. <laughs> and he tells his, um, his uh, followers to buy swords. And so <laughs> it really does depend what your interpretation of Jesus is, but to dismiss, um, you know, David and Moses were killers. They killed people, but they were not murderers. <laughs> we won't talk about Bathsheba. <laughs> that's that's another. Matter. That was murder. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna excuse that. Although I have to say, the the Talmud says anyone who says, um, anyone who says David sinned is mistaken because once David um, repented, his sin was no more. Um, so oh. I, I I have to I have to make that clear. But um, that's a good question of atonement. We should talk about that later, but or at some point, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how well, much later you want to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually do have to leave at the top of the hour. Okay, so we have about seven more minutes. 
Yeah. 10-ish more minutes. Um, well, we talked a lot about Paul. We've talked a we haven't got, I mean, there's still so many questions I have to ask. I mean, I guess, you know, while we're on the topic of David and his sins being forgiven, because this is really fascinating. So the Talmud says that David is no longer a sinner because he repented. anyone who says, yeah, it says anyone who says that David sinned is mistaken. Do you think and... this is a universal principle that anybody who repents of their sin is their sin no is, longer is forgiven. Is forgiven so, yeah. so, um, Father Stephen said the one article that he wrote, which got the most furor from uh, Christians, uh, from Protestants, was mm-hmm. when he gave a list of all the people in the Bible that the Bible says never sin. And, and in fact. He, he cites, there's a verse which um, the prophet says to Yerobam ben Nabat, right? If, if, you rep, if you repent and you keep the, the Bible like your ancestor David did. So really, it's, it's the Bible which, who's, that says that, um, that David, because of his repentance, and, you know, this is, this is what... Isaiah says in Isaiah one, he says, if even if your hand, you know, if your sins be crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Mm, and so this yeah. idea that repentance Isaiah, is efficacious. There are many. I mean, it's 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 basically what the entirety of the Bible really talks about over and over again is repentance. how God desires repentance and. Um, you know, that repentance does not require a sacrifice. It does mm-hmm. not require, God does not desire uh, sacrifices. He desires a contrite heart mm, and yeah. genuine repentance. Wow. And so that, that's wild. Yeah. yeah it's that's it's a there very in the Old different Testament. view. It's, yes. I, I think it shows continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament that that a lot of people don't recognize. A lot of people think like, oh, the Old Testament gods, like this Yahweh who was bloodthirsty and wants to needs 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 uh, his chunk of flesh in order to forgive your sins, and then they and then that's how they interpret the crucifixion of Jesus. That Jesus was somehow, um, you know, had to be sacrificed and killed by the Father in order to atone for our sins. Like, but that's not. I mean, I don't think it's true of Jewish Judaism or early Christianity like that that view of atonement this this is this is the reason uh, the the discussions and there's five and a half hours of discussions i have with father stephen de young the reasons for it is because most evangelicals assume that penal substitutionary atonement which is what this theory is called is something that is universal and really, um, it's pretty most new, of Christianity, actually, excuse me, it's a pretty new viewpoint relative. It's yeah. Well, most of Christianity would in fact say it's completely her- heretical and I would say it's yeah. blasphemous. And I was glad to learn that most Christians do not have this view because ultimately I, I, I think it really is 
blasphemous. This is what's difficult is that amongst Calvinist reformed um, and even, but even like even a largely in the evangelical um, tradition of the past 150, 200 years in America and, and beyond the view of penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel to them. It's, it's, but it's ultimately a distortion of the good news of Jesus. Because you're right. When Jesus came, he was talking about repentance. He's like, repent. Stop living the way you're living. Turn around. Put down your sword. Stop fighting the Romans. Or you're going to get your, your butts whooped. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened in 70 AD. <laughs> he was warning them of, of a very eminent thing. And and it's, it's a very Jewish thing. I mean, this... Mm -hmm. This... This is what Judaism teaches even today, that ultimately it's not about it's not about physical like we're not fighting um, flesh and blood. We're we're fighting a spiritual, spiritual war, violence. which hey, you know requires like? repentance. Yes, I am quoting. I am quoting Paul, Paul there. Yes, right. <laughs> he was Jewish for sure uh i i'm i am i am unconvinced but jewish no he was jewish <laughs> he was jewish you know what i'm saying <laughs> he was jew adjacent at least at the very least jew adjacent well, I, I i certainly hope so and in mm -hmm. another one of my jokes i make um in in being a little bit provocative mm -hmm. is um i say that um Paul isn't isn't bad enough to be always wrong. Um, he, you know, yeah. there are there are places in which I find, in fact, Paul, at least the uh, some of the things that are attributed to him are in fact very Jewish. Mm -hmm. I would say First Corinthians twelve is actually where the the one place where I found. Um, Paul being most Jewish. Mm. What what was that? Where was that again? So that's where he talks about the body and um, mm. well, Christian interpretation is that that he's talking about the church as a body with different body parts. Mm -hmm. But this oh, idea of right, First Corinthians twelve. Um, but this idea <laughs> is really something that we teach in Judaism about the entirety of humanity that Israel is, is selected for a particular uh, Purpose, job yeah. in the body of humanity, but On that behalf we of all the world. It, and as part of, you know, we, we view the other nations as being part of and have always, I would say, it's it's very clear, you know, mm. when Isaiah says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, mm. this isn't, this isn't something peripheral to Judaism. Yeah, this is something it's essential to Judaism, even uh, it, before Christianity, and yeah, and also today. Yeah, and the promise to Abraham, I keep, I mean, I feel like, the promise to Abraham that he, through his seed, all nations would be blessed. I think that's, mm. that speaks to, I mean, you can't have Judaism without that, right? You can't have Judaism without Abraham, right? Correct. <laughs> He's the father. 
right and, and, if, and if if yahweh says he wants to bless all nations through the jews then it can't be a sector sectarian thing you know and neither can christianity christianity needs to be open the church needs to be open to the idea that we are servants of the world on behalf of and in it you know i think in order for the church to survive into the future if we keep on our sectarianism then we're going to struggle or cease to exist <laughs> i i think the most important um and i'll i'll conclude with this the most mm -hmm. important single message of the entirety of the bible is that there is only one god who created all of us and that is a theme that starts from genesis 1 and goes all the way to the end where it says ani havaya loshaniti i am the lord i have not changed um mm. because there is only one god who created the everything everything um, and he is the only God of this world and the world to come. Mm, yeah. Speaking of world to come, Tom, I'd love in our next discussion to talk a little bit about Jewish eschatology. That would be fascinating. <laughs> Certainly. Wait, we, we have a lot to talk about. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. We'll get there. <laughs> well, I'm glad that um, we've I've got to meet you for the first time and um we'll just definitely keep in touch and i'll have you back at some point in the next couple months and maybe i'll come on one of your um what is it tuesday night chats that you guys do tuesday night we have bible study and uh we have just chatting streams on a regular basis um yeah. so everybody's welcome uh to my discord server welcome to my uh live streams uh the link is just open and anybody can join. Great. Well, any closing thoughts on, um, I guess, like, just thinking about like a Christian who's listening to this, what's one thing you want them to know about Judaism? Uh, I would say the most important thing to know about Judaism is that it is completely focused on and based in the five books of Moses and the other books of the Bible, which we believe to be only repetitions and reiterations and explanations of the lessons of the five books of Moses. And uh, if if you can if you can agree to if you can believe in the God that Moses um, taught, then there's a lot we can agree on. Mm. Yeah. I think you're right, too. That's what I was getting at with the whole concept of the design patterns. You see these design patterns, these tropes of story that, that continue on through the Old Testament. Well, Jesus says, if if you do not believe in Jesus, uh, if you do not believe Moses, how can you believe me? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Steep stuff. Yeah. Super cool. Well, I, I definitely look forward to talking again. Is there is there like a, a, a Hebrew um, evening prayer? Do you still know your prayers? There, 
there are definitely Hebrew evening prayers, and um, I would say that um, as far as prayer goes, um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, thy kingdom come, is a very good synopsis. I, I have videos on this mm -hmm. of the Jewish manner in prayer. Hmm. Was there something special about when Jesus referred to God as Father? Was that unique or was that, can you find that in the Old Testament too? Oh no, that's all over the Bible. Oh, cool. That is all over the Bible. It's, um, it says specifically of Israel that you, that you are sons and you are firstborn. But um, we believe all of humanity was created in God's image. And that avachad lekulanu, there is one father for all of us. Mm, that's really cool. I'm glad you say that because I think a lot of people think that Jesus was starting something new all, all together by calling, referring to God as father. No. But he Definitely was just following the, the Jewish tradition. Very yep. fascinating. And last question, was Jesus God? <laughs> <laughs> um. So I'll give you an interesting answer to that. Uh -huh. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, human beings are in fact referred to as Elohim, as God, yeah, over and over again. Um, and we all, so this isn't Christianity. This is Judaism from chapter mm -hmm. one. We were made in the image of God. And when we are at our best, we are in fact representing God in the world. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. And oh, I could get into this all day, but next time, next time. Yes. All right, Jacob. Well, shalom. Shalom. You have an excellent evening. Peace, brother. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath, it's not an easy path. But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust